So we do one episode pre-recorded a week in advance, and that's when everything has happened. Apparently, people are over, you know, uh, climaxing, listening to the orchestra over in Los Angeles. Hey, Tchaikovsky. I mean, <laughs> everybody's in my inbox talking about, <laughs> why haven't y'all, why didn't y'all talk about that? Well, you know, we had to do some podcast magic last week because right. of some travel schedules, but glad to be back with you here live this week um, and happy to thank our partners over at Salastina. Salastina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who played on your favorite films by night. They're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. More on them uh, in a bit, uh, including their upcoming programming. And we're actually going to uh, hear from Salestina today in the second movement. And we will also talk about what was going on at the LA Phil. But Scott, the other things that uh, we missed by doing a, a pre-recorded week uh, was Cinco de Mayo and May the 4th. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with the exception of maybe uh, Halloween, those were always uh, two of my favorite days to program for in radio because sure. you could really <laughs> go a, a bit broader and, uh, you know, it makes sense. No no one's emailing. People know on May the 4th why you're playing something Star Wars right. and on Cinco de Mayo why, why, you, why you're getting a little broader, you know, in, in that idea of classical music programming. Yeah. In your uh, programming days, uh, maybe at one of your previous stations, did you put a lot of energy into either or both of those days? When I was hosting the morning show at KVNO, I always liked to, um, I don't know, get a, a little different. In yeah. the morning hours, you yeah. know, my best as best I could. Mm-hmm. And I had no problem at all putting Duel of the Fates on any day of the week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and maybe twice <laughs> on May the 4th. <laughs> what is it about Duel of the Fates that uh, attracts you so much? Why do you love it? It sort of inspires that Carl Orff, Carmina Burana feel without all the Nazism. <laughs> sure. Yes. Go on. <laughs> so, but, and it's also something that you can sing along with too. You yep. can just go paya, bye shama, and you're <laughs> and you're right there. Well, here it is, just a little bit of it. right that's that's the movie that that everybody was shitting on back in the day that was the best part about that movie yeah that music i'm not saying the scene that it came from that music sure sure i uh was thinking about star wars all weekend actually thinking about this idea of uh the rebellion and you know standing up for what's right in this empire that's trying to take everything over i was also you know dell's out of town so i was had some time to binge some things. I was also binging uh, mm. Handmaid's Tale, the final season. So I'm just thinking about oppressive structures and and all that sort of thing. And I couldn't help but to think about the fact that as much as we root for the Luke Skywalkers and the Princess Leias and the, and the Lando Calrissians and all of those people, at the end of the day, most people would not be those people fighting up against something that's really trying to repress 
and oppress. Right. Maybe, maybe maybe that's me having an attitude or being away. I'm also thinking about. Uh, I'm sure you watched uh, Andor, right? Yeah, I was thinking about Cassian. Yeah, like yeah. that. The, the his his whole journey and and taking on and and participating in the in the rebellion. I think was a a really great story. Um, and yeah, I don't know why I just had a. Uh, a rock in my shoe about that all weekend, just thinking about, oh, y'all would never put on a da-da. And, you know, anyway. But, uh, but, sure. <laughs> but, but I think it's important to return to Star Wars for that reason, just to have the conversation of what it really means to stand up and to take a risk and to fight for something new. And it really makes you think about all the people who are unsung, who, exactly. make, who make something huge happen and maybe even give their lives and you don't even know their name until mm -hmm. years later. Mm -hmm. Beautiful stuff. Yeah, definitely puts more Star Wars on on May the Fourth mm -hmm. <laughs> in your programming. So on the next, I used to I, I used to love when May Fourth was on a Friday. So that means I could just mix them both up. You know, if, if I was doing a Monday <laughs> sure. to Friday show right. uh, anyway. But when we cross over into uh, Cinco de Mayo, there's all kind of music out there. You know, you could go with some of the straight up mariachi. There's some incredible bands out there. But in 1999, the Austin Pops recorded a an album called the Latin Album, uh, conducted by Keith Lockhart. You know he was sort of the the pops king. He was the for, guy for, for, yeah. for many years. And I think there's some incredible stuff on that album. The tune that I returned uh, to most in, in my Cinco de Mayo programming uh, was a composition by a composer, a Mexican composer, Agustin Lara, where he's singing about. Uh, a city over in Spain called Granada, and that's the name of the song as well. It starts with a really incredible trumpet solo. that as sort of the the introduction so as a listener you're like oh, okay so something really must be coming and then you know when the trumpet player is finally done you get this really beautiful singing by a tenor in this operatic style perfect programming as far as i'm concerned for a cinco de mayo was Pablo Hector Gama there. Are you I, sure that just wasn't the beginning of a Tarantino film? <laughs> it sounds very much Tarantino did a lot of uh, quote unquote borrowing, <laughs> right. didn't he? I don't understand the lyrics. I, I read the lyrics, uh, you know, but just listening, of course, I don't speak Spanish, but you can hear the passion. Mm. I mean, goodness gracious, he, he, whatever he's singing about, he has me believing. He in believed it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, Huapango is a favorite. Mankai oh, is yeah. Huapango. That, that, is yeah, that always the, goes in there. For the drive times, that would be good. But Sylvester Revueltas is somebody that I don't think gets near enough attention. Night of the Maya. Yeah, and I performed that. The Knoxville Symphony uh, performed that many years ago. And yeah. it's a it's a ride. That is an sure. incredible piece. <laughs> yeah, I love that one. But at the end of the day, I think 
all professionals. You know, my point, what this gets me to is that professionals in this so-called classical music industry, whether you are a conductor, a musician, arts administrator, radio host, I'm talking to the publicists, the presenters, the composers, everybody. I think in general, we just need to do a better job, do our best of bringing a style of music or a narrative of music to people where they are. Something that I'm beginning to lean into more and more is this idea that we have to break down the idea of needing to teach an audience something or reveal something to an audience for them to be engaged by this music. At this point, I feel like if we have to educate them Mm -hmm. as a point of entry, we just need to find another point of entry and programming, you know, intentionally around stuff like May the 4th and Cinco de Mayo. I think it's just a really great way to get people thinking about the aesthetic and how it can apply to them without them having to think about learning something or getting new information. Yeah, I agree. Um, I can't think of anything else that would be out of the norm that I used to play, but yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's that's when we talk about actually getting to, you know, a recording of a, a, a Mexican soprano or just a Mexican folk singer with her guitar and putting that on the radio, you know, as yeah. an example of classical music, just really expanding, you know, uh, uh, that that conversation based on how we can organically, you know, grab audiences or just shine a light on those organic connections. You know, as we come up here on this is 199, but as we're coming up on Opus 200, I'm just really grateful to see things being challenged and conversations that, you know, back in those early Opus days that we thought were kind of spicy or kind of controversial. Oh, like you were really doing just, something. Right. Like uh-huh. how, how now it's just a thing. Right. Like p- people are having the dialogue. It excites me to just see the general conversation moving forward. Uh, I'm seeing it more and more everywhere I go. And I'm just really proud that this podcast could be an integral part of that trajectory for the culture. Let's uh, go ahead and jump in. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this... It's Triloquy. Thank you so much for returning and tuning in. Shout out to all of the returning listeners. We couldn't do it without you. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the idea of classical music and expands it through a ex- more expanded uh, view of programming, the pieces and the aesthetics that we consider classical, the conversations that surround this idea and everything in between. For more information on Triloquy, to catch past opuses and to contribute, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.com. O-R-G. In addition to your very generous support, support for Triloquy comes from Salestina. I'm reading, Scott, from their events calendar. There's a question. It says, remember when different kinds of people from all around Middle Earth bravely came together to defeat a common foe? I do remember. Okay, well, they say, well, yeah, we don't remember that either, but <laughs> but that's what fantasy oh, they, is for. <laughs> they were talking about Lord of the Rings? <laughs> they actually were, yeah. So, <laughs> okay. uh, so coming up on, on May 27th, Saturday, May 27th, Salestina has Sounds Delicious, the Lord of the Rings. Enjoy a delicious themed meal prepared by Chef Rashida Holmes and a concert inspired by J.R.R. Tolkien's epic story. Come in costume, if you wish. Again, that's on Saturday, May 27th. 
27th at 6 p.m. It's at a private residence. So this is one of those like intimate things. Yeah. So for more information on that uh, and to get your tickets, claim your spot, go to salestina.org. Huge thanks to everyone over there for their continued support. Chris, Pat, and Johnny from the King's Singers join me in the third movement today. Talk to them. They were at um at Heathrow. They had a long layover and took the time to sit down and chat with me in the Delta Sky Lounge or wherever they were. So. I have been in that <laughs> airport. Yeah, it's madness there sometimes. You're oh, lucky yeah. you got some quiet. Um, yeah, I'm very grateful for that and grateful to have them this week. Uh, we're lifting up Rena Esmail and Amethyst Kia in this week's second movement. Excited to get into that. I'm bringing some love and hope and unity to the triloquy today. Again, my, oh my, my, my heart has been soft for a few weeks here in a row. So we're going to do a little bit of that in the finale, but for now we're going to jump into movement one. Get us started this week. What accidental you got for us, Scott? Well, we've been uh, crowing the last couple weeks about artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and the role that it might play in programming, in even composition of music. And wouldn't you know it, I'm looking at RadioInc.com. Last week, a story comes out. What did listeners say when this station went AI? So basically, they just turned over their signal to the motherboard. And (laughs) so it starts off, another radio station is getting pushback after giving AI a try on air. And they're not deterred. Thursday, April 27th, Swiss radio station Color 3 openly experimented with artificial intelligence, running 13 hours of AI-to-text written, AI-voiced, and AI-programmed music content. Not dissimilar from what Drew Carey tried on his Sirius XM show earlier this year, with one major difference, honesty. They basically said, okay, we're, we're going to use AI here for the next 12, 13 hours. And my like question that. was, did they have to tell the people that? I mean, do do you as a radio professional, if the decision was coming down at NPR to try out AI for one overnight or something, and let's say you're in the stage of your career where you were still doing overnight. So this is a, you know, a relief to you. Damn, one night's sleep at least. Is that something that, you know, you feel like you would have to tell the audience or that you think the audience should know? Or would you be OK just sort of letting AI use your voice to do the thing? What if it kind of sucks? And what if it Mm. takes information from a non-juried source and my voice is used to say incorrect information? So I can can see that. So just being responsible for what you're delivering to the audience by telling them. Number two, you said that's overnight, that's one night night of sleep off. What if it works? What if they like it? And then (laughs) I'm I'm all of a sudden looking for another job. Oh, yeah, that's true. I don't like that. Mm hmm. I'm going to quote or paraphrase from The Simpsons, Kent Brockman. Okay. I, for one, welcome our robot overlords. (laughs) And as a member of the media, can be helpful in rounding up other humans to work in your underground robot sugar caves. But in all seriousness, I I heard a report that said that, you know, with the development of AI at its peak, it will eliminate 300 million jobs globally. That's a lot of people. So then what happens as prices keep going up? Jobs keep getting taken over by computers, robots, and AI. So we're all going to be homeless while the robots take care of the, the and, rich people. And this, and this is why people need to pay attention to the creative media that comes out. Okay, we can all name the Matrix as a part of you know some of our understanding as uh, presented in Hollywood on on this issue. But 
I feel like what people don't remember and understand, maybe you remember the Animatrix, sort of the the animated anime sort of uh, accompaniment to it. Sure. Well, in one of those episodes, you know, it goes back into uh, the the fine what they call the second renaissance, you know, where there was where there was AI, but there was no matrix yet, and you know everything that mm. went wrong. So, long story short, I encourage everyone to go back and look at that. Long story short, if you don't remember, humans attacked the major robot city because the global economy was plummeting. Those robots could create any thing that people needed and don't have to pay overhead. They're just disconnected from the human capitalist structure. Yep. So, you know, humanity felt like, well, you know, they're destroying us economically. Now we so, you know, you have the robot war and then you have, you know, humans plugged into the matrix and getting all into the sci-fi. But I think there is something to that. I think we have to think about the real life economic implications that really are in front of us. I don't even think we're talking about at risk of it's already Folks who whose jobs won't be here in, in 10 years, based on what I'm seeing now, in my opinion. You asked about whether or not they needed to be honest about it. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I think that you can that you would be able to tell by there'd be a dry nature to it. Because you've you've called someplace that has a, a computerized uh, phone sure. system, sure. right? Yeah. And the voices on these systems sound similar to you know what I'm saying. So yeah. but you can tell most of the time when it's a real person and when it's a recording. Yeah. So they asked for, um, this radio station asked for feedback through WhatsApp. Yeah. Several hundred messages were sent ranging from, it's amazing that we, what we managed to do with this tool all the way over to give us back our humans. Some listeners admitted they had believed it was content as usual until the disclaimer popped up. I sometimes got tricked, but there is something weird and the jokes are flat, said one listener. Listener, Another said, it definitely does not replace the human. Okay, so what if part of your radio day is robots? What? Okay, here, let me ask you this question. Hmm. What part of a broadcast day would you turn over to artificial intelligence? Yeah, because look, I champion the people who do overnight radio work. And I think we can both speak to all of the people who really appreciated that live person in those hours, whether it be a truck driver, whether it be somebody uh, in jail, you know, someone, you know, so, so I don't even want to push off AI into like the late nights and the overnights because there's, there's valuable audience experience there. Maybe holidays, maybe my idea was like for emergencies. So when the, the uh, 2020 uprisings were happening here, I think that would have been a really great AI evening, (laughs) you know, but, but as far as a regular part of the thing, maybe not, maybe only as an, uh, a contingency and emergency plan. Evidently, according to this article, Drew Carey said never again, Mm. that they're, that they're, you know, that. (laughs) <laughs> it was not a success as much as it was for this radio station. Um, the last quote here, the um, the director, Pascal Critton, says, It in no way replaces the human being, its creativity, its emotion, its ability to break or shift so much on Color 3, which is the station they broadcast in, especially since the teams have been preparing for this day for three months. The AI is not simply a shortcut on the air. So it seems like... Even, you know, just as much thought as you would have to put into your broadcast, you have to put into the AI. So at that point, I wonder why not just put the effort into the broadcast? 
There you go. Yeah, that's, that's a great my point. that's my thought. I also think that this whole conversation, this whole technology is, as it says in the comments of this article, is in its infancy. I think about this. I think about it this way. We are at this point trained when we hear a certain sort of ding or or whatever mm-hmm. to go reach for our electronic devices. Yep. And, you know, so just, just stop right there. You know, it doesn't matter who's on the other end or whatever. We have been cognitively trained to do that. How much more will full-fledged intelligent robots be able to train us to do? Hmm. Interesting oh, question. Them training us. <laughs> this is new. Okay. Yeah. Before we leave this, I did. Uh, I mentioned uh, Chat GPT. I, I'm I'm sort of new to this. I only learned that this existed a couple weeks ago. So I've been playing around with it, and I asked it a few questions just to see what it would be. And some, of, I, I want to get your reaction uh, to to yours, but I did. Just type in who is Garrett McQueen. So it says Garrett McQueen is an American bassoonist, writer, speaker, and radio host. He is known for his work as a classical music advocate and his efforts to promote diversity and inclusion in the field of classical music. Okay. Fair. You can go to any website and read that. On this next one, it says McQueen was born on September 24th, 1988 in Memphis, Tennessee, and grew up in the nearby city of Bartlett. Okay. So that's not my birthday. That's not even my birth year. That's a a year off, but it's around, you know, that's around the same thing. And you again, you can go on any website and see that I'm from Memphis. But when they say I grew up in the nearby city of Bartlett, okay, I didn't actually, but I grew up exactly adjacent. And like one of my first jobs (laughs) was in uh, Bartlett and Mm. the, the movie theater that we would hang out at when I was in high school happened to be in Bartlett and that sort of thing. So that's a little, that that's interesting for me for, for the AI. I don't know how you could search something on the internet and get that uh, uh, about me. Would you be upset that somebody got wrong information on you? Something like that? Something small like that? I mean, I wouldn't be up. I'm not upset about it being wrong as much as I'm like, how do you know that? Or how how can that be documented in, Good question. in that way? You know, I did use it once. I typed in something like, um, tell me a story about the Navajo Code Talkers. Mm-hmm. And it basically spit out a Wikipedia page. You know, there were, I, maybe, maybe it all hinges on the question you ask. Yeah. And how detailed that is, I don't know. I I've, I haven't messed with it much. Well, I honest. did ask it about Scott Blankenship. <laughs> it says, Scott Blankenship is a radio host and producer who is known for his work in classical music programming. He currently hosts several programs on the public radio network, American Public Media. So, And then Close. I, I, th- I think there's some stuff where it gets a little shaky here. It says, Blankenship's programs on APM include Symphony Cast um, and Performance Today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, Blank- did, I did Blank- host some Symphony Cast. Blankenship yeah. also also hosts the Opera Quiz, a weekly game show in which contestants answer questions about opera for a chance to win prizes. Nothing further from the truth. Yeah, so there, so there is. They some... don't know my <laughs> my trouble with vocal music, but it, but it does say here at the very end he is known for his engaging and personable style as well as his deep knowledge of classical music repertoire and history. Hmm. Again, close, <laughs> close, uh, and then well, I'm, I'm not going to bore everybody with this, but I did want to 
type in, how do you define classical music? So it says here, you know, classical music is a term that generally refers to a broad range of Western art music styles and traditions. Today, the term classical music is often used more broadly to refer to a wide range of Western art music traditions, including Renaissance, Baroque, Romantic, and Modern. So, you know, we, we have some teaching to do to these machines. See, these machines are coming in colonized. You well, said <laughs> you said a few opuses ago you heard that some of this software only needs five seconds of your voice to be able yeah, to. That's, yeah, so, uh, I heard it. on one uh, on one interview they said three seconds, and they and they can get it to say anything it needs to in your voice. Okay, so I wonder how long it needs to unlearn the you know the slight inaccuracies. And get the correct. Well, it's taken us generations for humans to unlearn. So, damn, I hope that the machines are quicker. Shots <laughs> fired. All right. Anyway, we're going to move on to the next accidental with uh, uh, a track uh, from uh, The Matrix, the score to The Matrix. The composer uh, b- behind that score uh, is a man named Don Davis. I feel like we don't say Don Davis's name as much as we say The Matrix or talk about The Matrix. Anyway, or so at all. Shout out to Don Davis. This is a, uh, a cut from the uh, score called Anything is Possible. fight against humanity's opportunity to live in an ignorant stupor completely wait, 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 completely what? i'm thinking about the matrix completely comfortable as agent smith said oblivious you know oh. well w- would you be one of the people you know jacking in and trying to you know do x y and z even though all of that was a farce at the end if you really you know know the the movies but anyway w- would you be that person ready to get on one of these ships to fight the the system literally or, or would you be, you know, more like the character Cypher, who was okay with the idea of just being plugged in and living in the goo, oblivious? I think that uh, Morpheus would have been sorely disappointed in my performance <laughs> after coming out. I really do. Um, so I would, I would definitely be one of the blue pill guys. Uh, don't we do that now? To, we, to we a come, degree, we come home, we turn on the television, and we just zone out there to binge hours of uh, television at a time while we simultaneously scroll in a way in a way and that's what the wachowskis are sort of speaking to so, there yeah know? are we not already doing that mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i would probably be a glitch <laughs> <laughs> see morpheus would ground me because mm-hmm. i'm supposed to be in the matrix you know fighting agents and i'm gonna be there with smith i'm gonna be like look smith we can fight in a second but i need to know why are there no agents of color <laughs> how do you how do you quick put it in chat chat bt how would he respond <laughs> hold on okay okay it's <laughs> chat gpt said agent smith is a fictional character from the movie the matrix and does not have the ability to respond to questions in real life therefore if someone were to ask him why there are no agents of color he might respond with a dismissive remark such as race is irrelevant in the matrix or 
The Matrix does not discriminate based on skin color. <laughs> Horse hockey. <laughs> but, you know, these machines aren't going to care as long as we're, you know, being trained to do what they want us to do when they get smart enough. That's just going to be it, isn't it? I guess so. But anyway. I, don't, I, don't, I, I would like to be, there is one thing about taking the red pill. I wouldn't be able to just have stuff just uploaded into my head, mm-hmm. you know, to one minute, you know, be able to play the guitar like steve by you know <laughs> sure that would be sure something. sure yeah all right well um i think that that isn't uh, a good like drinking game or sort of dinner conversation <laughs> well what would you like immediately uploaded or maybe uh downloaded or, mm. or you know taken out anyway right. all right well we're gonna move on to our uh next accidental i'm just gonna give it uh one of one of these I don't know if I could give it a sharp flat or whatever. I'm reading from the Los Angeles Times, uh, quote, full body orgasm at the L.A. Phil. Witnesses offer conflicting accounts. First of all, did this just did this make it across your eyes? I know you're not on Twitter anymore, but it it seemed like everybody was talking about it. Of (laughs) course. Yes. You know, again, shout out and rest in peace to Blair Tyndall. When we mix sex and classical music, things happen. People look that way for a change. I'll, I'll read a little bit from this. It says Molly Grant, who named her and everything. Molly Grant was enjo- <laughs> was enjoying the uh, Los Angeles Philharmonic's performance of Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony on Friday when she heard what she described as a scream or moan erupt from the balcony. Okay, that wasn't her. Everyone kind of turned to see what was happening. Uh, Grant, who was seated near the person who allegedly made the noise, told the Times on Sunday, I saw the girl after it had happened, and I assumed that she had an orgasm because she was heavily breathing and her partner was smiling and looking at her (laughs) like in an effort to not shame her. It was quite beautiful all right well <laughs> i love that part it was so beautiful what do you what do you, i don't even know what do you think <laughs> <laughs> well you talked just a few opuses ago about how i think we just went back to the 1750s for a minute sure when i'm talking about opera when everything well no i mean you you know you would go to hear a concert in mozart's era and you know have something to eat Oh, sure. Talk to somebody, you know, maybe get in a fight, yeah. maybe draw the curtains and make out. I think that we're just seeing a return to the 1750s in this instance. But I, I don't, I don't think it was the music. I mean, Chike Five, <laughs> that not that one. Well, let let's let's for a second just pretend that it is. For me, I ask, where does real audience reaction, real audience engagement cross the line? So you know, we can talk about we want audience members to. Uh, clap whenever they won. Okay, we can make that uh, th- that that sort of compromise. We can talk all of these things. At what point is it too much? You know, encouraging the um, come as you are, the come as you are spirit. Um, Yo. <laughs> at what point are we doing too much with it? Is this just disruptive? We talk. We've talked about heckling on uh, on triloquy before, and how maybe that's uh, drawing a line, or if somebody else can't enjoy the experience. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, let's just drop formality here for a minute and and have real talk. Let's say that the boyfriend was uh, okay. providing some stimulation. Okay. Um, I mean, I heard of a musician asking, how do you finger a certain note? But <laughs> you're full of them. This is good. This is good. Um, so I, I, I do think that it's a little far. Um, and it was convenient to be able to say that it was due to the music because it was in the second movement. What the slower movement? Oh, that's what they, that's what they were saying. Okay. Oh, so evidently they messed up the 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 waltz and the finale mm-hmm. uh, for it. So you're asking me, was that too far? Was 
Was it too far? Or I, I guess just generally, I mean, are we going to draw guardrails around our audiences or not? You know, are we going to ask them to show up as they are and experience as they are? Or do we need to maintain certain rules? I, I think that you should wait until you're at least in your car before you, <laughs> before you go for it. That's all I'm saying. And look, people are going to think I'm making this up. Shout out to Aaron Apaza. If you don't believe what I'm about to say, find him. He's a bassoonist and ask him. We played a concert and maybe I could say it was a Tchaikovsky piano concerto. It was definitely some piano concerto. And we went to dinner with a couple of uh, audience members. I think they must have been funders or something afterwards. And the wife said basically that the the music did exactly that. She didn't use those words, but that mm. was anyway. Like So this is not completely new to my experience. So, you know, I think it is convenient for the LA Phil to be able to, you know, c catch on to this little viral moment, but I'm not completely <laughs> dismissing mm. the the idea of it. Well, it, I was on a, on a plane ride. I forget where I was going, where a couple got enthusiastic, a couple rose up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but you know, all the lights were down and, you know, so it was so obvious sure. there. Sure. So who knows what was going Um, yeah, just wait until you get to your car, man. <laughs> do you think this, I mean, you know, considering all of the press that this got, do you think this will result in the uh, curious audience member, the the simph curious? <laughs> <laughs> do you think there might be someone to walk up in there just to see what might happen next time? Yeah, maybe one is, person or two. Maybe, uh, maybe this is a new kink. <laughs> well, no, it wouldn't be new because there's loads of people that their kink is, you know, possibly getting caught. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So maybe there was something just at play, especially and if the report says the boyfriend was over there grinning. Well, what would you do? <laughs> Act like you didn't know her? <laughs> <laughs> oh, if, oh, if I was the boyfriend. Yeah. Uh, uh, I guess so. Yeah. If, if, if Dell decides that Tchaikovsky is excited to get with the concert hall, I'm going to, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and according to Molly, who you quoted at the, at the beginning of the article, it was quite beautiful. So there's varying opinions. Evidently. There were some reports that I was seeing on social media earlier on that said that the orchestra uh, completely stopped the show and everything. But according to this article, that was yeah. just here to say the, the music kept going. I guess, you know, despite everything that was happening in the audience, the conductor was on the podium saying, don't stop don't stop okay i'm done i'm done all right you got anything else <laughs> oh that was a good movement all right anyway uh speaking of movements here's the third movement <laughs> from tchaikovsky's fifth symphony i'll have the link in the description you know kiki and laugh amongst yourself uh, a recording back from the uh, 70s i believe uh, 70s or 80s of the la phil this is under zubin meta of the third movement from Chike five my one of my favorite waltz movements in the symphonic repertoire for mm. sure yeah.
I've, I've always just loved the way, and here I am, you know, going to bat for the Western classical, but I've always loved the way that Tchaikovsky brings back the original theme in the first movement and puts it in that section in that way, mm. just as a sort of, okay, I'm, we're having fun, we're at the party, but, you know, in the back of my mind is this drama that I have to deal with that's waiting for me as soon as I leave this party. You know, I just feel a lot of um, angst, but hope-filled angst, you know, in, in that conclusion. Really, really beautiful music. Is it enough to, you know, make me, mm-mm, maybe not, but. Well, I was just going to ask you. <laughs> what, I'm dry over here. What composer, <laughs> what composer would do that for you? Uh, we're in the second movement. And where, <laughs> where we're going to talk about this very orgasmic uh, composition. No, uh, we're, we're going to uh, share some music that we've been spending some time with oh. <laughs> on our own time. Uh, get us started. So, you know, we uh, pre-recorded last week in advance because you were off to a Jason Isbell concert. How was the concert? Was it worth the trip? Uh, it was very much so. Um, Jason played all the tracks that I wanted to hear and a few others that, you know, from his brand new album. Amanda Shires was there. Um, I, I, might, I might get dinged for saying this, but I thought the mix was muddy. I, I had a hard time understanding Jason at points. However, Email comma, Scott. However, <laughs> Amethyst Kia opened and now you know jason likes to put women of color on as his opening acts yes he's he's the and, uh, he's the yannick of roots <laughs> <laughs> so amethyst kia joined him on this particular leg of the tour i was not familiar with her she had a pretty straight ahead um four-piece band uh the woman playing bass my friend leanne was saying have, have you seen her bass player mm. so i'm thinking that leanne you know, kind of had a, a thing for the bass player, which, you know, that wouldn't that have been neat to hear. So um, she had a really amazing array of instruments. She started off playing what I could only guess was like a, a Depression era, vaudeville era banjo mm. that she played for some. But um, her last song is what really hooked me. Uh, Vera Hall back in the late 1930s, uh, released uh, Trouble So Hard. Mm. And then Moby used it as a sample in like 2010 or the, the 2000 teens. And uh, Amethyst just did a straight up cover of it. But she, sound, she sounded on stage exactly like she did in her recordings. So you know there's not a whole lot of studio magic going on. It's just her voice. Mm. And when she started the track i'm thinking oh okay let's see how she does with this one and then the kick drum hit and i felt that in my bones mm. the, the it felt like the concrete in the stadium was just reverberating with every kick and then she's got this slide solo over the top she just did a wonderful treatment of trouble so hard
she received by the audience? What was the crowd into her? Orgasmically. Oh, nice. Nice. No, um, I think that uh, by the time we got there, uh, I think that we had missed the first two or three songs that she did. And it was pretty subdued. But by the end, she had everybody standing up and and really paying attention. Mm. Yeah. And uh, by the time this comes out on the 10th, uh, Jason Isbell and Amethyst will be playing a three night stretch in Austin, Texas for Austin City Limits, which I predict will be the concert of the year. Right well, there. yeah. Well, well. Shout out to Amethyst Kia. Yeah, yeah. Go check Great her. St- go check her stuff out. She's just a just such a. I would put her along alongside like Tracy Chapman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's just really nice. a talent. Nice. Well, I uh, last week I went over to I, I made the <laughs> the forty five minute plane ride over to Sioux Falls, <laughs> uh, South Dakota. It was it was thirty six minutes on the way back, even shorter. Oh, you had the tailwind <laughs> um, uh, to go uh, support the South Dakota Symphony. Uh, check out one of their uh, latest uh, premieres uh, and uh, to to see what else they were up to and. There was a work on the program that really, really blew me away. It was a piece of music by Rena S. Mail. Uh, I had the opportunity uh, to uh, sit across from her uh, at dinner afterwards. We had some great conversation. We talked a little bit about um, uh, Indian classical music and that sort of thing. And, you know, how, you know, the sitar is one of those instruments that most people would know or or have heard of to some degree. Mm -hmm. I think I said something like, oh, yeah, it even made The Office. And Rena S. Mail was like, oh, yeah, that was Moroccan Christmas. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, okay, so all right, we're, we're we're doing the thing here. Anyway, um, she she had a piece on the program called "My Sister's Voice." What was also on the program was Beethoven Nine that closed out uh, the the program. So the idea was Beethoven uh, with Schiller's poetry in that final movement is talking about uh, brotherhood and you know humanity and all of that stuff. So they wanted to pair that with uh, a piece about sisterhood. And uh, what Rena does just generally, we've talked about so much of her music here on mm-hmm. Triloquy, but mm-hmm. what she just brilliantly does, I think, is make the point of this broadened perspective and view of class music by infusing some of those Indian sounds into the uh, just very neatly and brilliantly within the the comp- confines of that you know uh, Western orchestra that so-called traditional orchestra um, so a part of the piece that I wanted to play so and, and I didn't mention the piece features a Western soprano and a, a Hindustani singer you know mm. along with the orchestra mm-hmm. so they're singing in their respective styles and uh, we're gonna hear uh, a little bit uh, of the piece here uh, and this recording is actually this performance features Salastina uh, so shout out to them but the Hindustani singer here is Siley Oak who I actually heard perform it in South Dakota as well so huge shout out to her incredible musician of uh, the other uh, singer here is Robin uh, Stites uh, a little bit from my sister's voice by Irina Sunny sun, Johnny Joe, 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 Sunny sun, John
So you hear those two worlds coming together. I do. There, uh, the the opening movement is actually a slow movement, so you get more of the lyrical interplay between the Hindustani singer and the Western soprano. Yeah. There were moments that were choking me up. Beautiful music. I think, as I said on social media, I think Rena Esmail may be my favorite composer right now. Mm. I have yet to hear something by her that I don't fall in love with. And if we can just continue to support our living, you know, also shout out to Nilufar Iravani, who had a, a premiere on that concert by the South Dakota uh, Symphony. If we can just continue supporting our composers, that that could be the thing that changes this industry. Uh, mm-hmm. I know uh, Judd Greenstein has, uh, you know, very been very vocal about changing classical music is going to require a support of living composers. That's right. Moments like that, where grumpy Garrett, who wants to burn down every concert hall, is actually having a good time and is engaged, and I'm like even emotionally engaged. Goodness gracious, we can change this world if we just continue to support our living composers. Last week or a week before last, we talked about the Bellingham Symphony Orchestra removing barriers. They're doing more to get living composers work on and <clears throat> pair it with works from the canon. Yeah. How did that fit with the Beethoven nine? You know, I think thematically, again, we're talking about brotherhood versus sisterhood and and that sort of thing, because the first half uh, were both those, uh, new, the premiere and then this new piece by Rena. I think, you know, for the sake of the audience member who is expecting something's more quote unquote traditional, the Beethoven nine was a good pairing. It's long. That's that's my thing about the Beethoven symphony, you know, aesthetic aside, that's a lot of music to sit down for at one time. And yeah. the, and the the longer I spend, you know, outside of the concert hall in that way, it just feels like a long time. I mean, a 30 minute piece is one thing. A 70 minute piece Ooh, that's that's a lot. It was performed brilliantly. You know, choirs from all all across uh, South Dakota came yeah. together, and you know, so it was a really great performance. Um, and I and I appreciated that uh, the first half of the concert was not treated as the add-on or the mm-hmm. accoutrement. Like there was as much you know excitement around that as there was the Beethoven Nine, if not a little more, actually. Good. Um, did they lead? Yeah. Did they lead with Rena's then? Uh, they led then, with the uh, the the world premiere by Nilafar Ravani, and then it was Rena's, and then the intermission. Beethoven was and then all we came, half. and we came back for the Beethoven. Got yeah. it. So yeah, huge shout out and congratulations to Rena Esmail. If you don't know her music, definitely go uh, check it out. E S M A I L, brilliant catalog, brilliant composer, and I'm just so happy to also see the love that was surrounding the South Dakota Symphony from there local air you know who has heard of sioux falls i hadn't before i moved to minnesota but they had a sold out crowd in a huge concert hall for their local orchestra these things matter you know mm-hmm. new music matters uh engaging in different ways matters and i think uh, the south dakota symphony is a testament to the success of that describe the crowd mostly mostly white i'll just say it um, maybe that's the case for Sioux Falls, but definitely broad age ra- age ranges. I saw children there. I saw young parents there. There were obviously people there on date night, you know, having their wine. There were the uh, older patrons who you might expect to see. I'm, I was I was happy ab- about the experience for sure. I think that in an instance like that, where you do have a, a town that's predominantly white, mm-hmm. and they're showing up for pieces like that. Yeah, I think that's a really good sign. And not to mention, you know, uh, shout out to uh, Delta David Geyer and Brian Akipa, you know, mm. who collaborated 
uh, for the South Dakota Symphony's Lakota Music Project mm. that has been, that's still getting a lot of uh, attention, and they're continuing to do that. And primarily, you know, now that I have I had a peek inside, primarily as a means of developing relationships between communities. So it's not even squarely about the music that we create or the recordings that we make to uh, sell and market and those sorts of things. They really are interested in those on the ground relationships. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm singing their praises this week. The South Dakota Symphony is doing some incredible stuff over there in Sioux Falls. Congratulations so to if you them. ever in the area. I can't imagine it in the winter. You know, <laughs> it's not that different from here. Yeah, but you got to drive over there you know, a little <laughs> bit more than you got to drive here. Uh -huh. Anyway, shout out to them. All right. Well, we're uh, transitioning into the third movement this week. I have the uh, great, great, great pleasure of uh, featuring my conversation that I had with Pat, Johnny and Chris from the King's Singers. I wasn't terribly familiar with the King's Singers. What would you, you know, if someone asked you, what would you say about the King's Singers? Boy. They're, they're difficult to describe, but um, for, I could be wrong here, but from my experience, it's like the um, Gilbert and Sullivan vibe. That's mm. that's what I've primarily heard from them. See, that's interesting because I, I thought of them more as like the uh, older, like the medieval and Baroque sort of well, choral that, yeah. ensemble. So that you, too. I mean, and, and that's, that's where we started with the conversation. You know, I wanted to know, well, how is your approach to classical music, something that can really get a, a broad uh, range of audience members. And uh, Pat, the the group's first countertenor, actually, you know, he jumps right in and talks about how the King Singers doesn't really have a genre. They do a little bit of everything, you know, from that Baroque stuff uh, all the way to more contemporary. They even have a Disney album that mm. uh, is is coming out if it hasn't already. So they're, I think they're a really great example of an ensemble that knows how to spread around its offerings to touch as many audiences as possible. Would you go so far as to say that they're, you know, sort of like the Canadian brass, they're more of an aesthetic? You know, the, 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 the King's Singers provides a certain sound that is consistent, even as the members rotate in and out? Yeah, I would compare them more to like the group Pentatonics, really mm. at this point, now that I'm a little bit more familiar, they really do a little bit of everything. Mm. And they may, you know, no, I'm not talking about Pentatonics, but, but, but they may be even more expansive than a group like Pentatonics because they are also dipping into that, you know, so-called classical as well as the more pop and, the, and, and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, just really excited to uh, offer this uh, conversation to y'all for this week. We're going to transition into that conversation with the King Singer's performance of Can You Feel the Love? Love tonight, one of the uh, latest uploads on their uh, YouTube page. So that album uh, must be here if it's not uh, coming up soon. So hope y'all enjoy this rendition and hope y'all enjoy our conversation. <laughs> And they don't have a clue Oh, they'll fall in love And here's the bottom line A trio's down to two Oh, the sweet caress of twilight There's magic everywhere And with all this romantic atmosphere Disasters in the air 
first thing to note is that there is no um, King Singer's repertoire. I think if you come to a different selection of concerts across the year, you'll hear pretty wildly different stuff. And for some audiences, um, we occupy the same space as kind of like Glee and Pentatonics. And you're speaking to us on a day that we just released a cover of Let It Go from Frozen. So I think, you know, the normal definition of classical doesn't always apply to us. But there are concerts where you can come and hear some pretty intense contemporary music and where you can go hear medieval um, plain chant or chansons. So, like, I think it's quite hard to define what we do because there's inbuilt into our DNA is loads of variety and lots of genre pushing. Um, and that's kind of the beauty of being six a cappella voices is that we can kind of turn our hands to anything and go in lots of different directions. So I'd say some of some of the space we occupy is niche for sure. Um, and it's for people who are really interested in, I guess, the history of Western classical music. And we kind of lean into that in certain areas. But then what we love to do is to bring really disparate styles together, music from different languages, different eras, and kind of put it in this melting pot of, of celebrating what can be done with the human voice. So that must, mean, that must mean each of you uh, come to the King Singers with a broad array of abilities and techniques. If you're going from plain chant to Disney and everything in between, it, it must be uh, uh, require such a flexibility that you don't see in many other ensembles. I think I think for me, um, we, we've all had some shared backgrounds, but also we've done done different things. And um, this is the one opportunity in my life that I'll ever get to croon some awesome jazz standards you know and we released an an album of um the uh, great american songbook a few years ago and i always thought in, a, in in another life i would have loved to have been a frank sinatra or or whatnot and and so this this group's given me that that platform to to sing these great standards all around the world but also you know i got introduced to the the folk genre mainly through my wife um who is from the north of england and there's this wonderful folk uh, traditions up there and her family's now in scotland and and i've got their own as well and so it just so happens that the group over 55 years has has collected a whole lot of folk songs from all around the world and so again it's 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 a it's a place that can really encourage um a sort of understanding of of a certain genre that perhaps we didn't have when we were singing in the choir stalls or wherever we were you know as as little boy choristers so yeah, it's it's. I think from my point of view, I've had to learn new techniques to sing these this sort of wide variety of music um, with a real sort of authentic approach. And the group has had experts at every every juncture through, through you know throughout its history to be able to teach that from within. And where where it doesn't have that, it it seeks it from outside. And so we've had people come in and coach us through whatever we need a bit of a bit of a helping hand with. Johnny, I wonder how you come to the King Singers regarding things like repertoire and technique? Is there something that uh, you've really had to learn or refine uh, over the course of your involvement with the ensemble? I mean, yeah, there are huge amounts. But maybe what's interesting about my part is that I come from a different musical background to the rest of these guys. I wasn't trained as a little cathedral chorister when I was eight. I, I kind of had piano lessons with my neighbor because she also acted as a babysitter when I was very young when my parents were working and then when my parents moved I sang in a local community choir and we just sang you know children's songs folk songs songs from musicals my pop music really was my first love songs from musicals were my first love 
And I became more involved with choral music when I went to university where I was also a choral scholar. So I did that alongside being an undergrad because I was told, you know, you're good at this and you'll probably enjoy it. But it's really embarrassing when I say to people that I, maybe it's not embarrassing, but within choral circles, it's pretty unusual when I say that I hadn't heard the Messiah or the John Passion until I was 19. You know, I'd never, I'd never come across them. It was, it was out of my world. Um, and so actually some of the stuff that I have to learn more is how to be a good choral bass in the truest kind of most old school version of that. How do I provide the kind of the lower frequencies in a way that best support the harmony that's stacked above me? Um, rather than thinking, you know, how can I sell this Disney song or how can I, how can I be a showman in this piece of comedy? Um, and so everyone has a slightly different journey. And I think it's also true for the different voice parts and that, you know, me being a bass, I'm singing much more my natural register and I'm things like jazz standards were often sung by people with my, with my, uh, range, right. Whereas with Pat, you know, the number of jazz countertenors is, is far fewer. I mean, I was amazed listening the other day to hearing jazz, jazz harp on your like podcast. And it blew my mind because the jazz harp idiom is incredible. And yet like, I don't, I don't think about it very often. I'm sure there is a jazz countertenor movement as well that <laughs> is unfamiliar to me, but may well be out there. <laughs> well, before we uh, go on, for the sake of uh, voice and uh, name recognition, how about uh, each of you introduce yourselves and talk about how you came to becoming a member of the King Singers? We'll go uh, Pat, Chris, Johnny. We'll go in that order. Nice. You've chosen the voice order there as well, which is <laughs> handy for us. Um, so my name is Patrick Dunnicky, and um, my voice part in the group is first countertenor. So as Johnny was saying, I sing kind of the highest, the equivalent of a soprano part if we're in a normal SATB choir. Um, and uh, I grew up as a little boy singing in churches and cathedrals, very kind of traditional um, choral upbringing. And then I went to go study music at Cambridge and I was specializing actually in the history of music and theory and composition and early music particularly. And while I was there, I did a lot of singing. Um, so I sang in my college choir and I did like opera roles um, as part of a really bad band, um, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and then shortly after I left, I was singing professionally and teaching singing. Um, and then these guys called me up and said, there's a vacancy opened up for a high camp center and someone had you know, recommended that I might be able to do the job. So I auditioned. And that last bit of the story is kind of how it goes for all of us is a mystery email or mystery phone call, which <laughs> invites you to audition. But now I'm in my um, seventh year in the job and it's always varied, always challenging, always awesome. For me, I grew up in New Zealand and um, I grew up in a place called Christchurch in the South Island. And um, if you like Lord of the Rings, not a lot happened in Christchurch, but a lot happened within a couple of hours of Christchurch. Um, and um, Christchurch is a pretty traditional type city. It was very much founded on um, on 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 England, and a lot of the architecture prior to the big earthquakes that happened in 2010 and 11, which destroyed 90% of the CBD. It was all very old school, and you could imagine yourself in England 50 years ago. Um, it's now almost sort of rebuilt as a modern city and it's it, like it's not recognizable from my my childhood but not many cities get a chance at a second life so it's really interesting for me to have watched it from afar over the past decade or so since I've been in England um and see and see it sort of re reborn and as someone who travels through a lot of cities around the world I appreciate both those that are really modern and and really accessible and whatnot versus also I love all this sort of 
antiquated, very old school um, buildings and architecture that we encounter wherever we go. So I'm sort of interested in that. And um, I was a music and French teacher. Uh, and then I always thought if I don't go now, I'll always wonder what if. So I bought a one-way ticket and came over to England in 2010 and started singing, whether it was paid or unpaid, just to get my name out there and whatnot. And uh, someone heard me and recommended me for the King Sings. And about a year later, I was asked to um, audition. So life life changed pretty sort of dramatically. Um, and then I'm now in my 12th season and I've had a whale of a time living my dream life, traveling and, and singing. So it's been pretty sweet. And last but not least, little old me. So I'm Johnny. I am the group's current granddad in that I'm in my 13th season. I am the bass. We have a, a pretty unique makeup in the King Singers, which we've always had, which is yeah, two counter tenors, one tenor, two baritones and a bass. So I've been the bass for uh, a while and I grew up in London. Uh, I went to a German school when I was younger because my grandmother and her mother were refugees from Austria at the beginning of the Second World War. Um, and I, yeah, like everyone else, just graduated from university, didn't study music. I don't have an academic, uh, this is so embarrassing to say, but I don't have a single academic qualification in music at all. I have um, played lots of instruments, but I, I've, I've never really properly studied theory. We have to do this funny exam in England called grade five theory if you want to do practical exams beyond a certain level. And I was entered for age five and everyone thought, oh, he'll be great. He knows what he's doing. And I got the pass mark. They were like, oh, maybe he doesn't quite know what he's doing. Anyway, that's the pinnacle of my music theory achievement. Um, I think I do know a bit more than grade five theory now, but I've never tested it. Um, I graduated in 20, 2009 and didn't know what I wanted to do and was working in advertising in a job that paid nothing in London because advertising pays nothing. And like everyone else, got a call and auditioned and thought, well, this is going to be more fun than sitting at a desk being paid nothing. So here I am. And uh, you heard the rest about, you know, every, the, the group has got a really lovely geographical mix of backgrounds. So one thing that unites most of the group is this this wonderful um, experience when they were very young of singing in cathedrals and developing kind of choral musicianship to a very high level. And that's something which I developed, I hope, developed much later when I was at uni. You'll have to forgive this comparison, forgive this question, but with such varied backgrounds and uh, experiences in music, I can't help but to think about maybe the idea of like in a K-pop group, there's the the bad boy, there's the scholar, there's the, you know, these different types of personalities. I, I wonder if that exists within the, the King Singers. Johnny, maybe you're the bad boy. I see your tattoos there. Oh, yeah, I'm terrible. <laughs> no, um, I think what's interesting the, the the group of course has evolved right so one thing that we haven't said about the king singers is that it's been going for 55 years and there have been 28 members ever so the, the rolling membership is pretty slow the average length of time that people stay has been 12 years and um what that means is that you know there, there can kind of be ages of king singers and those those things of course do change and it's really nice but they don't necessarily change that quickly and so the, the group i joined was a much more formal group that wore sort of tweed jackets a lot more and formal shirts all the time. And that was very much its modus operandi. And what's interesting about the group now is I think we're, we're much more kind of who we are off stage as well as who we are when we're in the public eye giving a workshop or whatever. So the clothes we're wearing now are very much the clothes we would go when we see people. And we just wear something different when we're on stage. I think you therefore get a lot more of the personalities of the individual coming through when you see us touring all the time. Um, and I don't know if we necessarily have a bad boy, but we definitely... <laughs> I think we definitely celebrate our differences a lot more than we might have done. And yeah, like it's, it's, it's really interesting that I only 
I, gen- I think about the only time I ever don't wear sneakers is when I'm on stage. I think that, you know, I, I go to a wedding and I find every way possible to wear sneakers with my tuxedo and I will wear something different. And I sort of like in that sense, kind of have my own preferences that I try to honor. And I think everyone has those things as well. Pat, I wonder what you think about the evolution of the King Singers, considering the the rich and, and deep history. How has a uh, how have you engaged becoming more contemporary, more fresh while upholding this over 50 year tradition? For me, I think it's about actually working out what are the bits that really should be maintained? What is the core essence, like the golden kind of thread that makes the King Singers and the King Singers? Everything else, I think, changes with fashion, changes with time. And I think, you know, what the guys were reading on their flights to what they're wearing, to how they spoke, to what music they chose to sing. Across that 55 years, it's it's really changed with tastes, with culture. You know, it's normal that the group of a given time reflects what society around it is doing, what's, what it's interested in. And so there's certain things I don't think we would ever change. The thing we want to protect more than almost anything else is the sound. That's our kind of distinctive USP is the particular sound we make and kind of how we make it. So I think that is something that we really try to guard and honor. Um, and that's a big part of our legacy. But um, as Johnny said, what we wear when we're off stage and even on stage has changed with tastes. They used to wear like frilly shirts, velvet jackets and big like comedy bow ties. That's not something we would go for these days. It's much more kind of minimalist what we wear now. Um, and, you know, you know, what we choose to commission, who we choose to commission for new music the sorts of pop songs that we get arranged for for the like acapella side of what we do um that's all changed even the format of concerts you know back in the old days they would do really kind of lengthy chunky very serious concert programs now we're much more keen to do like 60 70 minutes straight through concert concept programs which are going to really bring an audience with let's face it like a slightly shorter attention span along with us on a more sort of high-paced ride so pretty much everything we do changes with the tides and with society um and you know in another five years there might be a different set of king singers here or at least some of us and things will change again you know we haven't reached the perfect point it will always evolve and that's that's why it stays strong and chris i wonder if you could speak to why that evolution is important we can talk about uh changing tides for the sake of audience development and and those sorts of things but from from your perspective why is uh the evolution of the king singers important why is that a vital part of what you bring to the world such a good question i think i've always maintained ever since i joined the group i don't want to be the last king singer you know like it's important that when i'm in my in my old age uh, I can look back on the group with fondness and go to the concert and be like, yeah, it's still going strong, you know. And I think something that is interesting for all of us is obviously none of the the current lineup were the originals. However, we we still keep in touch with them, and it's really wonderful to see them and to hear stories from their time. And there are always funny touring anecdotes and you know and funny concert experiences and whatnot. Um, I look at programs that they sang um, when they toured New Zealand back in the in the early seventies, and there's and there's still stuff that we do now, and and that that gives me hope that we're still keeping sort of true to what they started. But equally, the things that we do now are are, are quite different from some of the sort of programming that 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 they did. And so I think f- for me, 
I love the idea that we are sort of, sort of caretakers of our role and and we we look after the jersey if you like if it's using a sporting analogy and you hand it on to the next person you know and um I don't know that we would ever retire a jersey as they do as a sort of token of like um respect to a basketballer or you know Kobe or, or whoever right you know I I love that but I love the idea that for us it's you know you you never own your your role you, you just look after it and hand it on hopefully as as good as you can to the next person and it continues so I like the idea that the king singers will always be relevant because there's always a need for really high level art um, which is accessible and we we take our music seriously but we don't take ourselves seriously and I, I love that and I think we 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 honor the original lineup by continuing in the same vein that they always continued you know and and so I feel pretty confident that we're, we're sort of doing our bit now. So Johnny is the the longest running member. I wonder if you can speak to the ways in which uh, the King Singers has engaged the world through its recordings and through its performances. What what is the uh, what's in the center between things happening in the world, positive or negative, and what the King Singers decides to perform, what the King Singers decides to record? So I think there, there are lots of ways of answering this, but I, I've got like two key points. I think one is like very directly in the music we choose to celebrate and the people we choose to engage with. And, and like a good example of that was an album that we did called Finding Harmony, which came out three years ago. And the idea was, you know, that this should be a celebration of music that has provided a voice for people, different kinds of people all over the world. Um, and so it's shown music's power. It's shown that the sort of lots of amazing music has existed in lots of different communities you know be that in 11th century georgia or be that in the us in the civil rights movement you know the, there has been music at the heart of all of these things and we wanted to use our platform in order to be able to kind of celebrate it in the best possible way and um it was kind of amazing and it still is an amazing program because people don't realize say the richness of music from estonia or how like music really was one of the key catalysts that brought about the singing revolution in Estonia that ended its kind of uh, kind of subjugation by Russia. You know, so that's insane. That's kind of incredible. And you, you get that tied through from times like that through to the modern day when you've got kind of music by, you know, Kesha um, talking about kind of rising up against abuse or music by Ariana Grande in the, in the wake of her bombing and sort of being, being there as a balm for the people who were harmed during that. Um, but the other key thing, I think, on, on kind of the flip side of that, that the kind of the first part of my answer is that it's about the people we engage to do that. So when we did Finding Harmony, for instance, it wasn't just us saying, OK, we're going to take this music. It was us finding people who believed that the music needed to be shared as well. So we worked with an amazing composer in, in the US called Stacey Gibbs, who lives up in Michigan, but grew up in Tennessee. And his parents were very heavily involved in the civil rights movement. And he did all the arranging of all the pieces from that story. and. And in, in a way that really reflected his his upbringing. I mean, it's interesting that um, the arrangement he did of this little light of mine. We got it. And we were like, we don't actually think this is the tune. And he was like, no, no, no. This is entirely entirely redolent of how this would be sung, say, in in a church in in Georgia. You know, and actually everything is so much a riff on the original tune that you might not hear the original tune, but you hear it kind of developed into something bigger than its original form. Right. So with, we had that. We had a kind of wonderful work with Georgian people. We're talking about the Georgian music. Uh, and, and so that, that's a good example. Um, I, I could also go on to like, we've got an album coming out later this year. And on one hand, it's a celebration of 
like the music of George Ligeti. And if you want to take it as that, it's 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 George Ligeti's centenary, and it's called Wonderland, the album, because he wrote six pieces for us called um, Nonsense Magicals about 25, 30 years ago. Um, that are really funny settings of um, like stories from Alice in Wonderland or like children's nursery rhymes, but done in this crazy avant-garde way. And we're having them all illustrated in kind of fun, cartoony ways to show that kind of this music can be really super accessible. But also on the album, there are new commissions and some of them have been in our library for ages, but others of them are really new. So we've got kind of three pretty, if not brand new, uh, compositions by female composers, one's from Japan, one's in Nigeria and Ghana and living in London. Um, one's a kind of a wonderful established old composer, Judith Bingham, who's kind of a dame here in the UK. And it's using, you know, if, if you want Ligeti to be the way in, that's absolutely fine. If you want to find the stuff which other people aren't doing or the people that need to be celebrated, they're there too. So that's quickly answer one. And then the other one I think is, it's the variety piece that Pat talked about before. So in each of these things, we're doing something we try. We try to do something, but it's also the fact that, you know, if you feel safe going to a choral concert because you know you're going to get motet, you, you might book the King Singers and then you'll get some of that and you feel safe in the concert. And then we can take you or we try to take you somewhere which you didn't know before. So I think that's, that's really a, like the very core, like the essence of the current lineup. It's saying, okay, this is, this is what we're trying to do at a, at a time when we do need to we do need to kind of bring new, different, underrepresented music to lots of people. We're going to get people to a place where they feel safe. And then we're going to say, okay, now you're here. We're going to take you to places which you might otherwise not have gone to. And that's, I think, a key bridge that the Kingsingers can provide, or we try to. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Pat, back to that variety piece that you were speaking about earlier. I wonder if you can go into what the uh, process of bringing such a variety of music to life looks like the rehearsal process are there books that uh, each of the members read before the first singing or or how does how does that work really you know going beyond the notes and rhythms and understanding the stories that you're bringing to the stage great question um it really does vary um and as chris mentioned before sometimes we have some kind of inbuilt experience within the group as to a certain style and as one very kind of straightforward example um, like I, with my studies of early music, I've got a good handle on some of the, like the scholarly information or whatever about, about performance practice for early music. But then, um, when we were working on some of those things, Johnny was talking about in Finding Harmony, for example, we would take advice from, from people from those places. So we had like language coaches coming in for these difficult languages. And, you know, we haven't mentioned it, but language is a really important part of what you're talking about, Garrett, in this question. It is that we have to, learn how to sing um kind of legitimately in lots of different languages and try and do it um, as accurately as we can no matter how hard the language so often we're getting in external language coaches um, we are always listening to um kind of the original version of things so if that's a folk song if that's a jazz standard you know whatever it is we're always listening to recordings of it from other groups um so yeah like coaching reading and then experimentation i think like as adults, we often lose the ability to play. Um, and it's such an important part of like, you know, spiritual development is the ability to play and experiment. And so I think the more we can do that, the more we find interesting ways of tackling different styles. And the most exciting moments in rehearsals and concerts are when we take a risk, try something new. And often that's how you kind of break through into an idiom. And like, actually, 
now I think about it, with the Disney stuff that we've just recorded, that was an, a case where we had to really experiment with how far we could go with different vocal styles. And we had a bit of help, we had a bit of coaching, but um, that was also about listening to these old recordings from the 1960s of this, like, these Hollywood studio choirs who made this extraordinarily distinctive sound, kind of quite different from us, quite kind of um, sort of warbly almost, very American, very kind of rich, um, incredibly expressive. And we had to kind of wrestle ourselves slightly towards making that kind of sound to add that flavor into the album. So it's something we're always doing. And I think that spirit of experimentation and play is really key to it. Chris, one one thing that I'm thinking about right now, you know, in, in response to the conversation we're having is how style um, is, uh, it feeds a lot into perspective. So, you know, when I, when I hear each of you talking about an American style, it's like, hmm, I wonder what is the perception of an American style by people who aren't American? I wonder, you know, how you could uh, answer that question or offer that perspective when you think about an American style or an American approach. What does that mean to you as as someone from New Zealand living in England? You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the the first thing I would say is it's really hard to 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 pinpoint and like one thing about American style because American has given us like, America has given us such a, a, a rich amount of music. You know, from hip hop to blues to to i'm like you know so much that you know i mean i was i was listening to one of your podcasts that that you did that you recorded at the end of last year and you were saying and one of the things you were saying is that, that hip-hop is celebrating it's like 50th anniversary and it's now like the most listened to uh genre in the world now it's interesting because coming from a pretty parochial little town in christ of christchurch new zealand with four hundred thousand people i grew up not listening to hip-hop um although my brother was the only like voice in the household that wasn't listening to classical music and was trying to make sure i could listen to as much non-classical music as possible and was always slipping me discs that he'd like downloaded of the ramones or you know all, all sorts of cool you know cool old school stuff but i guess for me like an american sound is is forever changing but it is it's it's in all of our supermarkets. It's it's everywhere we go. We hear American music because it's so popular, and here we are trying to make sure that we can kind of not compete, but but have relevance. And so we're we're influenced heavily by American music. You know, um, whether it's in the classical realm, there are some amazing you know composers who have given us so much wonderful music that is. In every every high school choir's library, you know the likes of of Whitaker and and Lauritsen and 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 who you know uh, there are so many. But I think for me, like an American sound is just it's something that that you can sit back of an evening and hear a bit of Louis Armstrong and Ella just doing their beautiful duets. It could be it could be some wonderful Aaron Copeland. It could be could be some wonderful hip hop it could be anything really like I, I i don't know that i can pinpoint one american sound but i'm influenced by it because it appears on my spotify algorithm somehow and i'm i'm lured into it i watch tv and i watch lots of movies and there's so much american music sort of filling those soundtracks so i i don't know if my colleagues have anything else to add but it's it's something that I guess I'm aware of, but also it's so part of our general consciousness that we maybe don't even identify it as American music. It's just a music, you know, like jazz could be American, but it could also be global. It's become so popular that 
everyone sort of has ownership of it. And I think that's pretty amazing for one country to have created something that the whole world takes as their own, you know, like, and that's, I think that that is, uh, yeah, I think that that's an amazing trait. It is briefly on that note, some of the best jazz and like some of the wildest jazz I've heard is Japanese. And it's, it's, it's just nuts to think that it comes from a country that likes so much order. Um, there are two, there are two pieces that I've heard recently that to me, I think they're deliberately designed to sort of be American pieces, but one is, um, one is Wynton Marsalis's violin concerto that he wrote for Nicky Benedetti. And the other one is Teddy Abrams's new piano concerto that he wrote for Yuja Wang. And they're, they're both, I mean, so Wynton's is kind of hugely informed by, by blues and by kind of folk melody. Um, and Teddy's is hugely informed by swing and jazz. Um, and, and the kind of like a slightly more like brawly nature of kind of like American big noise. Um, and I think that it's really funny. I, they, I just don't believe that they could be composed by British composers in the same way. There's so, there's so much that lives in the cultural hinterland that even though, even though they are things which are written now and are not trying to be kind of after anyone in particular, that they, they are, to me, like, like unintentionally so very American. Um, and I, I think, I mean, I say them, I think they're two of the best pieces of music that I've heard in a very long time. And I, uh, particularly the Masada's Violin Concerto I've listened to about, I don't know, 15 times, which for a 40 minute long piece of music is quite a lot of time. And, you know, Pat, I want to come back to you because in this world of musics that we're talking about and, and exploring all of these cultures, a part of uh, honoring that variety is going back into the, the age old sounds and age old aesthetics especially uh, as it relates to your latest album. I wonder if you could talk about Tom and Will and why it's important for this to be in the mix of everything that the King Singers puts out there. There's a kind of, there's an internal to the King Singers and an external answer to this. Externally, the kind of mission we, want, we had with this was to take two composers who are really important to the history of like choral music, church music globally, but like also kind of English church music specifically, these were two absolute giants of that genre. And to explore the music that shows us not their kind of rarefied church personality, these great figures, but, all, but actually to celebrate the kind of cheeky chappies behind it who made it. And these were two composers with interesting lives, with a lot of personality. And if you go into the right bits of their output, you can find hints about what they're like as men as humans as their experiences so we kind of dug into their madrigals and to the kind of like the comedy items that they wrote and to the slightly more experimental pieces they wrote and things which gave us a snapshot into these two great composers but like what they were like viscerally as they were alive so that was kind of what we wanted to celebrate and like the timing of it is um the 400th anniversary since their death they both died in the same year so it's a great chance to celebrate them for us as the king singers though it was also a chance to explore these two extremes of our library. So we knew that in this year we'd be celebrating Disney, which was 100 years old this year, and Tom and Will, these two kind of extraordinary composers who died 400 years ago. So I think kind of for us, it was a great chance to explore these two extremes of our repertoire. Um, but also, yeah, the music they wrote is extraordinary. It changed the course of like music history in lots of ways. Lots of the musical language that became part of um you know classical music culture came from this period and came from 
innovations and changes that these two guys made. And they were very interesting dudes. If you have a lot of time, I can tell you a very naughty story about Thomas Wilkes, but maybe we should save that for the after party. <laughs> sure, sure. And and Johnny, as, as someone who, you know, takes a lot of pride in having a different musical trajectory than the conservatory and, 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 and those sorts of things, I wonder what your reaction to learning this music, learning that history, you know, as is uh, put forward in Tom and Will, how, what, what that means to you. Again, considering your uh, lack of proximity to what many of us would consider a traditional path, I think you know that there are there are lots of things. I think that if we if we think about kind of like modern harmony and you know, the complexities of modern harmony and and the fact that the kind of the the harmonic world in which we live today has drawn from so many different influences. And particularly vocal harmony, you know that that has grown up in its formal way in in lots of different places. But I think that the the English choral tradition, which was at, at one point spearheaded by two of the men we're celebrating here, like Thomas Wilkes and William Bird, they were really central. And we think about say like the the masses of William Bird, which we in England think are like some of the greatest things ever written. Like these are examples of almost kind of perfect polyphony. So so to be able to really get under the skin of this stuff. And to see like, okay, this, this is really valuable because it's, it's given the world this, like this is one kind of thing you can do through music, particularly in the sacred spaces that it was designed for. Some of these big churches, which had kind of acoustics that it could carry this stuff for seconds way after it had been sung. I think what that then gives you when you're approaching music, which is way more complicated, say like the ligature we were talking about before is that you start to kind of see harmonies that underpin stuff which is way more complicated it gives you an understanding of like what is my role seeing a kind of a dominant pedal here for this length of time as other stuff is happening like what are the the false relations that are going on above me how how has this become the bedrock for some of the the really wild composition that we now get to enjoy now and i think that 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 is a really wonderful instance where by going backwards we can see more clearly now hmm. and so that's i suppose that's why i'm I'm really grateful to do it. Um, it's also it's also nice to to learn. I think someone like Pat and I hope he continues in a second already knew a lot about this music because it's a, it's a passion of his. For me, you know, the Disney project was one of the greatest joys of my life because I've grown up with this music. I, I sing it all the time. I listen to it voluntarily in the car all the time, right? But to be able to kind of write a love letter, a musical love letter to some of this music that's been a a totem for so many people of how music can bring people together and bring people joy was easy. I didn't have to kind of spend hours and hours and hours watching thousands of films. I knew what some of the canonical ones were. That That's true for this, for other people in the group. And that's what's so amazing. Go on, Pat. There's one thing that occurred to me, um, which we should probably like highlight as well. Um, I loved hearing that, Johnny. Um, is also that, you know, lots of this is about exploring roots, exploring where we come from, whether that's us as individuals or where whole musical traditions come from. And the the genesis of the pop song is the madrigal, right? So at this time we're talking around the 1500s, the lightest, most popular music you could get was the madrigal. Stuff people would sing at home, people, stuff people would sing in the pub. It was like topical, it was relevant, it was funny. Um, and so like in a sense, by recording and learning about all these madrigals, we were also exploring where the pop song originated from mm. it went a very circuitous route but that's where it started you know yeah that's a that's a very interesting point there so chris 
whether we're talking about madrigals or whether we're talking about Disney blues, all of the figures and all of the conversations that surround this culture, uh, these cultures haven't always been positive. There's been pushback. There's been public critique and, and public challenge. I wonder if that also applies to the King singers. Yeah, I look, we're, we're not everyone's taste. And, and I, I'm okay with that. I think you have to have pretty thick skin when you put yourself in the public eye. And I'm just grateful that I don't have abuse or paparazzi outside my doorstep that other people have to go through. You know, I walk down to the supermarket and I walk around and I'm not hounded. And I really feel for people that just doing what they love means they can't do that. So I think we should, we should, have some sort of context here like yeah we're not everyone's cup of tea but we're also a, a, a bring a lot of joy to a lot of people who who come and see us at concerts all around the world and when you're doing 100 110 plus concerts a year you see a fair few people and because we go out and see them after every show which again i know some people don't do that experience because they would have thousands of people there and you it wouldn't be safe you know so I realize that something that we do, which other people offer as a VIP experience, it's just second nature to us to go and chat to people and say, thanks for coming. You know, so some people say after the concert, you know, I'm not sure about that piece. And I, I don't mind them telling that to my face. Um, I don't read comments on YouTube. I, I'm sure if I did, some would be positive and some less so. But I just sort of think we have to have, you know, um, authenticity about what we do. And when we walk on stage, we honestly are doing the best that we can. And presenting music in a way that feels right to us. And some people are going to love that. And some people are going to be like, we just can't hear this music when it's not sung by females, or we can't hear this music when it's not sung by larger forces. And that's okay. Other people go, I love, I've never heard it in a chambered performance. So I think it's just one of those things that I have tastes as well. I have, I have certain pieces of music that I listen to that I, that I might go to because of the way it was recorded, I just think that is for me this piece. That's it, and and so I'm I fully expect that other people will feel the same way about us, and and that's cool. Like it keeps the conversation going, and it means that there's always a place for us. And there's also a place for lots of other people doing similar things or slightly different things. And you know, there's there's enough room in the world for us all to have a good life and you know and a good experience in, in the public eye. So. So it's quite funny. I feel like I'm a little child at school, putting my hand up. Um, I wanted to add as well, like some of the, some of the things that we do really don't feel radical at all. But for some people, they're too far. So um, the two things I would levy. I mean, like we talk to our audiences the whole way through concerts, right? So we'll 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 announce stuff. We'll um, we'll kind of hopefully laugh with them, cry with them, tell them what's happening. Um, and you know, a lot of people like a really formal concert process where you just sit down and you, the music is performed to you as it says in the program and they get up and bow and they leave, you know, that you don't necessarily get this, like this more kind of intimate engagement, which is hopefully more human as we think. And to us, like, it's a really, really important thing. Like take people on the journey with you, like use, use the power of speech and storytelling and um, description in order to kind of i don't know enhance people's experience of the music but for some people that's that's too far and like we get it now i think it's a shame if they don't but i'm not going to make them do anything else um but uh, it was also funny we did a concert in germany about four months ago and and established someone who loves the group was like 
I laughed too much in that concert. It was in Germany. I didn't like laughing so much. And I was like, okay. <laughs> you're like, okay, we're performing a really hardcore program. This was of Ligeti music. It's like, if we can get people to laugh with Ligeti, like surely that's a win. Like there's surely, you know, and there'll be people where, you know, the exact thing you're trying to achieve is not going to be what they want. And you're like, okay, so we have to accept that even, even if you care about us, like uh, the the approach that we care about is not necessarily going to resonate with you and that's fine and how do you persevere you know when it comes to really protecting your own mental health and your emotions with so much noise surrounding you positive or negative well you know i think what, what everything these guys say is true i think it's also remarkable we don't get it's remarkable we don't get more um more kind of negativity to be honest for people who put a lot of stuff out into the public world whether that's in concerts or online and i'm the kind of guy who looks after our social media and our website so i kind of see more of it i guess than these guys might for people who do that we get remarkably little um pushback i think um and i often wonder why that is um and i think it's because we come at everything we do as chris said earlier not taking ourselves too seriously um we kind of approach everything thoughtfully, I think, and we do it with honesty, with openness, and musically we try and have as much integrity as we can, whether that's you know approaching the right type of arranger for the right music, um, whatever it is. I think people can always see that we are we are working in good faith and that we are kind of um we're we're taking it seriously, um, the musical side, but we're not, you know, it's hard to it's it's hard to describe, but I think we kind of approach things in a way that is unthreatening to people. We never kind of claim too much. We always um, hope to, you know, entertain and inspire and bring joy. And if that's your aim, it's very hard to make people angry. Um, you know, people do have things to say about the fact that there aren't women in the group. And um, from my point of view, personally, I find that kind of difficult. I totally understand why that's a question that gets asked um, in you know today's landscape. But for me, as the essentially the first um, head to roll, if we were to get women in the group, you know, I I love the countertenor voice. That's why I started singing super high, um, and it's a very unusual sound, and not many countertenors are around. So, you know, in the same way that a string quartet uses a violin at the top rather than an oboe, that's kind of our sound. And um, so, like, yeah, that that's a that's a debate that we have occasionally in interviews or like you know newspaper items or whatever but generally speaking um we have such a kind of cheerful and unthreatening mission that people aren't too unkind and i guess the most the most um the most common kind of criticism is people comparing us to other iterations of the king singers Hmm. Um, if you delve into those dark weeds of youtube the most sort of common thing um that the diehard fans will get involved is like oh i preferred the recording from 1990 to you know the second alto did a better solo in that version or whatever. Like that's the kind of criticism we get. You know, that's, that's fine. That's easy to live with. And that's part of life. Well, and, and Chris to, you know, I guess in response to people's critique of, you know, why aren't there women in the group and, and that sort of thing, maybe there are collaborations that the King singers uh, engage that bring in other voices or, or other aesthetics. Big time. And I think one of the great things to do is to be on stage with someone that you really admire, who is doing something completely different to you, 
but at a world-class level. And what one of my like favorite memories is performing with the German oboist Albrecht Meyer, who is just, he sings through the oboe. And it's interesting because I remember talking to him over a game of table soccer, and he was saying that he had this dilemma that he was doing voice and oboe, and then at one point he had to choose. So it's no it's no surprise that his ob- oboe tone is just so cantabile, it's so singing, isn't it? It's just it's just the most beautiful oboe sound because I've, as a music teacher, I've heard some pretty squawky oboe sounds in my time with high school orchestras and hearing him almost be like a seventh king singer, the way that he would interweave with us and react to us. And it was just so beautiful. Well, as we uh, begin to wrap up, Pat, we have Tom and Will out now. There's an upcoming uh, Disney release, I understand. I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit uh, about how folks can uh, engage the King Singers, especially for folks who have never engaged what you've uh, recorded and and created. Sure, yeah. Well, whichever way you like to listen to music, we are basically there. Um, So right now we have the Tom and Will album out, and it's on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music, Deezer, whatever it is you use, it's probably there. There are also CDs that you can buy and, and like downloads. Um, and at the end of April, um, our new Disney album, When You Wish Upon a Star, comes out. Um, and if this episode comes out before then, there's already a load of singles that you can go and listen to in all those places. But the best way to keep up with us and to work out how to engage with us is on our socials. Um, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. And as of literally today, on TikTok. Um, we just posted our first ever TikTok, so that's kind of cool. Um, and so we, we post there sharing where we are and what we're up to and any new music that comes out, no matter whether it's medieval or it was written yesterday, you'll kind of find out about it there. So um, yeah, our website and our socials is the place to go. And hopefully it's quite a fun environment for people who love singing or are interested in the kind of stuff we do. Great, great. Well, Johnny, as the senior member, I'll uh, I'll close with you. So as we think about, again, this idea of the King Singers being uh, an ensemble that each of the members, uh, you know, takes care of for a time, you know, the identity of the ensemble seems so much greater than the identity of each of the individual members. I wonder uh, if you can speak to what your hopes for the future of the ensemble are considering that that sort of value structure of, of the King singers. I think, I think for me, it's about being the best bridge possible. And I think bridge into lots of different places. So, you know, most of us grew up becoming experts in kind of choral music through the English choral tradition. And we use that as the vehicle for trying to take people you know, from classical music or from kind of the traditional kind of classical music mold that people might think we'd sit in and take them out to other genres and uh, out, you know, to, into languages they haven't heard or into music they don't think would normally be sung or into collaborations that they might not have seen. Um, I, I think, therefore, that you know, if, if the King Singers can, can act as this kind of this, this interface, then, then we, we help to create a music world which is more accepting and tolerant and, and engaged with each other. And I think that that's something which really sits at the heart of what we do. I also think we had this recent incident in Pensacola, which was uh, extraordinary, but I think also in some ways kind of positive because it started a conversation. And the the thing that happened was that a concert was cancelled at two hours notice because pupils or students within a very Christian college discovered that members of the Kingsingers were gay from their Instagrams. And then it was sort of made very clear as we we cannot stand by 
you know, and have artists who subscribe to a different lifestyle be um, be on our stage and ask to be seen to be supporting them. And that started a big kind of um, a big conversation about, you know, like, was it the right thing? Of course, you know, it, it, how, how could this be happening in the modern world? Uh, the fact is that people do have different views to each other. And, you know, we're, we're not about kind of convincing everyone that there is one right way of doing things. But we were asked a lot in the aftermath of that, would you go back? And I think our, uni- you know, our unanimous response was, yeah, if they wanted to invite us back, yes, we would go because, you know, nothing changes if we're not talking to each other. You know, the more that we kind of isolate ourselves, the more polarized we become. And so if, a, if the King Singers can be ambassadors for just connection, and talking to other people, whether that's through our music or just by going to places that other people can't or won't go to, then I think that we can hopefully, I don't know, right now and in the future, continue to be not only a musical bridge, but also a kind of a human one as well. Well, you done dumb me and I bet I felt it. I try to be chill, but you're so hot that I melted. I fell right through the cracks. Now I'm trying to get back Before the cool done run out I'll be giving it my best And so nothing's gonna stop me But divine intervention I reckon it's again my turn To win some or learn some Blackboard Exerted No more No more It cannot wait I'm yours the King Singers there in an arrangement of I'm Yours Made Famous by Jason Mraz. That comes from the best of the King Singers album. Really great to speak with them. And I think some really cool stuff that they're doing. My, my uh, perspective was definitely changed based on our conversation. One of the things that is always present in, in their albums is a sense of humor, though. You can definitely- yeah, Not taking themselves too seriously. Right, they're having fun. Yeah, yeah they're having exactly. Fun. One of the things that we talked about in the conversation was how there was a, a school, a Christian school, I believe it was down in Florida. I'll, I'll link the, um, the, the story in the description. Uh, this is from Classic FM, uh, the King, back in uh, March. The King singers say Christian college canceled their concert over concerns about sexuality. So they have, Wait, what? So they have uh, queer members of the group, and they were supposed to perform at this Christian school. And I think days before, yeah, we talked about in the conversation, maybe even the same day, they cancel on them because they don't want to, you know, promote any of that in in their uh, official statement. So when we're talking about, you know, social issues meeting the arts, if this is something that's happening, we aren't imagining this. There's a whole article from Classic FM, not even a a, a, a decolonist rag somewhere where people are looking for trouble. <laughs> Classic FM is reporting about musical ensembles that cannot perform in certain spaces because somebody is gay. All right. So how far are we from that spreading to be a, a more ubiquitous part mm-hmm. of programming and what happened, you know, maybe that's not tomorrow, maybe that's not next year, but we're going in that direction. And I think it's so vital that we tell these stories and put this stuff out at the front. It's not about shaming uh, the Pensacola Christian College. It's not about, you know, even painting the King singers as heroes. I think we just need to talk about it just to see the direction we're headed in. Uh, good point. And it's one thing to have a paid night off you know, they, I'm sure they still got their money, even mm-hmm. though there was no performance. But still, kind of thinking like seriously, I mean, you're going to shut it. They should go to South Dakota, evidently. And <laughs> yeah, period. <laughs> <laughs> evidently, where you were, they would be 
warmly welcomed. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know they uh, they said that they would gladly you know go back or try it again if they mm. were invited. You know, mm. so they're 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 being the the bigger people here. But you know, just always important to uh, denote these things. All right, but anyway, huge thanks to Pat, Johnny, and Chris from the King Singers. Hope y'all will check out their music. And we're gonna transition here into the final movement uh, with a Ghanaian folk song, a little bit more singing. This one is called Sansa Chroma. I actually heard this performed by a youth choir earlier today as at least uh, as we're recording this i'll speak mm. a little bit to that as we uh take a listen to this i'll see y'all on the other side of it from an album titled Zimbe. I'll have the uh, information on that in the description. When you listen to that, Scott, what are the what are the feels? Is that a sorrowful tune? What or, or is it what what, what do you what, to what comes me, to mind? Especially yeah. with that percussion that they had going on. It's hard to be yeah, that, solemn. That triangle going on. Yeah. yeah, shout out to the triangle players. Yeah. <laughs> um but you know again um it's vocal music like that is a tough sell on me. Hmm. But the kids did the kids did all right. Yeah, yeah. I I just think it's just kind of fun. It it makes me smile to to hear music of that sort of spirit, you know, that mm. that flavor. I think a lot of music that uh comes from West Africa sort of comes with that. All right. This podcast is called Triloquy. So I'm going to ask you, what would be your reaction to a performance of that in full spirit, you know, in full respect, but everybody on stage is white? We talk about the spiritual. <laughs> Can white choir <laughs> sing Negro spirituals? What do you think about the uh, the Ghanaian folk songs? Would you feel a way? Would you have a reaction to to that? Performed by an all white ensemble, mm -hmm. are they doing their due diligence to be respectful to the culture and and the story behind the music that they're they're performing? As far as you can tell, as an audience member, as far as I can tell, so sure, yeah then it's fine because I think that there are black composers out there who would be thrilled Yeah, that any choir out there would be performing their music. Yeah. There is a, you know, what, what I wanted to talk about in this final movement briefly, again, as we get to uh, episode 200 of this podcast, I can't help but to think about my sort of emotional trajectory, sort of just the things that I've been through, the things that we've been through together, the way that you know, maybe some of our opinions on certain things have shifted or been more informed. There's certainly a time in my life where I can unequivocally, unequivocally say that I would be upset by an all-white ensemble performing music like that. Mm -hmm. When I saw the choir, the, the children's choir singing that this morning at this concert I played, my heart was just filled. My heart was warmed and I'm seeing these little kids excited about it and, you know, doing their little hand motions and all that stuff too. It's it's so genuine. And I feel like for me, a lot of that uh, has just come from healing. 
I'm really working hard, being really intentional these days about uh, leveraging my healing and holding on to my healing and not letting um, an opportunity to have a dialogue or to inform someone if I need to do that be dismantled by my being angry or upset or calling someone a cultural appropriator and all that sort of stuff. I'm not saying that cultural appropriation is not a thing. And and there aren't examples of that because again, we have to talk about due diligence. We have to talk about respect, but you know, I can definitely have the conversation of loving our music and not caring enough about us to fill in the blank. I can also have that conversation as well. You know, you love the music, but not the people. But at the end of the day, like I said, I'm working on hanging on to my healing and utilizing that healing. And I just really appreciate the degree to which, you know, we have been able to have different dialogues and how that has, you know, in in conjunction with my Buddhist practice, I wouldn't say softened my demeanor, but helped me see a way forward that is a little bit more expedient. I would say, you know, we talk about expedient means all the time in Nietzsche and Buddhism. It's like maybe recognizing where intent is pure And if the intent does not match impact, having that opportunity to dialogue, but if positive intent does match positive impact, letting that be and celebrating the fact that we have people that are celebrating music and celebrating music that doesn't come from Western Europe for a change. Part of this is maturity, Garrett. You're up to 35 now, right? 36. 36. Okay. So when this podcast comes out, I will have just turned 53. Mm -hmm. So that happens over time as you start to run into more opinions that are different than your own. Yeah. That you start to see that your own assumptions about things are being challenged. That that's just you're just becoming a you're just becoming seasoned, Garrett. I will lightly push back because I I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't call anyone's reaction to the murder of George Floyd immature, for example, you know. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But, no, I'm I'm talking about uh your your more um open-minded approach to people who have different opinions and and ideas than you do. And for the sake of the change, not for the sake of just, sure. you know, what uh, Martin Luther King Jr. described as uh, negative peace. You know, remember, you're talking about negative peace and positive peace, but just really thinking about the way to have the dialogue for the sake of a changed ecosystem for the mm-hmm. sake of, you know, this work that we're doing, uh, manifesting. I- I'm going to give you uh, next week to really, you know, talk about some of your emotional, uh, intellectual, whatever trajectories over the, you know, course of these four seasons of Triloquy. But I wonder if you might preview, you know, what comes front of mind when you think about Opus One of Triloquy versus Opus Next Week Two Hundred of Triloquy. Well, if you've heard all of them, you you most certainly have heard a middle-aged white man evolve and change mm-hmm. over the course of those years. I think that going into it, I was open-minded to a, for a lot and ready to learn yeah. about a lot. And now I take that with me in my everyday life. I interact with even other white people differently now. Yeah. So it, you know, it's been it's been a very positive thing for me. I'm not necessarily sure that all the listeners agree. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of people who want me to shut up. Sure. <laughs> so. 
There, I'll shut up. <laughs> and I guess we'll save the rest for next week. Thanks sure. for tuning in, y'all. See you then. Or the, actually, the oh, before I hit the gong button, the week after next. So we're going to do a replay next week, and we'll give y'all the uh, season uh, finale then. But until then, keep listening. Thanks so much.